Okay, today my guest is Professor Paula Kalejuri. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Paula as a person. Professor Kalejuri is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a, a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I will skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Kalejuri is an AIB fellow and a fellow of the Society for Industrial and Organization Psychology, the SIAP. She received the Best Global Leadership Research Award in 2013 from the Global Leadership Advancement Center, received a second place in the Best Paper Award in International Human Resource Management by the AOM, both in 2009 and 2010. And recently she is named as a top scientist in business and economics uh, in a Stanford study. Paula runs her own consulting firm, Tasca Global, which works with organizations on the selection and development of students and professionals. She fre uh, frequently offers expert opinion on CNN and CNN International. Thank you, Paula, for joining us. My pleasure, Elgaz. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Paula, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> Other than a princess? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, I wanted to be a flight attendant because in my reality, I, I uh, was from uh, a family that never really traveled. And I thought the only way I'm ever going to be able to travel is if I become a flight attendant and, and, and do it that way. So, yeah, flight attendant. What was your first international trip? Where, where was it? Wow. Do you know my first international trip? I had saved my money to go study abroad in Rome, Italy. And that was my very first time ever on an international flight. It was 1987. And where did you grow up? Uh, Buffalo, New York. So if you're familiar with um, the United States, it's uh, considered part of the Rust Belt. <laughs> it was, uh, my dad was not a worker. And uh, yeah, it's a very un-international, un-global place to live. <laughs> okay. Um, well, how did you choose academia? So interesting, that 1987 trip to Rome, Italy, it was the fall of 1987. So um, I had saved my money, as I mentioned, and I got there shortly thereafter, the market crash, Black Monday, all the money, all my money was, was converted to lira in an Italian bank. It was worth very little. Um, all the kids back then, you know, American kids usually were wealthy back then who studied abroad. I wasn't. So I called home to mom and dad and they said, sweetheart, get a job. <laughs> so I ended up having this very natural experience because I was working in Italy. I, I, was, I had an Italian boyfriend. My friends were Italian. The Americans were all hanging out with other Americans and, and going off to you know, ski in Switzerland or go to Greece. or go. So my experience was very different. When I returned back to finish my undergraduate degree in, in uh, psychology, my psychology professor said, because I was, I was sad, I was mopey, I was down. You know, we now understand that as repatriation adjustment. Mm -hmm. in, 80, in 87, 88, I mean, we were, just, we were just learning it. And so they said, if that had such a profound effect on you, why don't you study it? And so I said in my, in my application, I want to st study what makes people effective living and working internationally. And I want to know how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. And I joke that over 30 something years later, I'm still studying what makes people effective living and working <laughs> internationally. I've been doing one thing since then. 
so my my push to academe actually was um, the experience from the, the crash. Super interesting. Okay, if if you stop doing what you're doing today, what what would you do? What's the second best alternative career path for you? I, so, you know, you know this. I I get into a full state of flow when I'm writing, and. I think I would probably have tried to go into something into, I don't know if creative writing or accessible writing, something that was was related to just, you know, writing, writing books, writing, something writing really. Did you always write well or did you learn how to write good later? Oh my gosh, I was a horrible writer in college, horrible. My, in fact, when I started graduate school, I was such a bad writer. My advisor said that he felt like I would take a handful of commas and throw them on the page. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think over time, um, I started hearing, hearing my written word in my, you know, like, you know, we we do as writers, you you learn your your voice. And um, once, once I hit that stride, I was, I, I loved it. I loved writing. Interesting. One of my OB professors, actually, at Ohio State, he used to say, you know, guys, we're not researchers, we're just writers, and we need to perfect our writing. And I didn't understand it at the time. And it, it took me about 20 years to figure out he was right. Um, writing is a big talent here. We, we need to nurture it, develop it. Um, your papers are great, so you did it. Um, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Oh gosh, uh, you, you shared at my, during my bio that I, I own a consulting group. The, the previous iteration of that consulting group had actually started in the late nineties. Um, when I finished my dissertation, I, I actually had data on predictors of, of expatriate success. And I had a client, of, of, I didn't know was to be a client, but somebody came up to me at the time and said, Paula, um, why don't you turn that into an assessment tool? So, so fast forward, I did, um, I started a small consulting group while I was, you know, trying to be an assistant professor. Mm. And, and actually, you know, I thankfully both were doing well, but the, but on the um, consulting side, everyone was giving me advice. Don't take on office space. Don't take on headcount. Don't, you know, don't carry any expenses you don't absolutely need. But things were building and building, and I was kind of getting caught up in the momentum. I had four employees. We had office space. It was doing well. I was able to focus on my my academics while they did, you know, everything related. And then, unfortunately, 9-11 happened. And overnight, all of our revenue dried up, and I I was undercapitalized. So... um, within months I had to break the lease, let everyone go, and I basically like <laughs> folded it in and, and you know kind of retreated it and then you know kind of it reemerged later as Tafka Global. Uh, um, uh, what I are... learned a lot. I learned to take good advice, that's for sure. Um, and I certainly don't take on office space or headcount unless I absolutely have to anymore. Sure, but but your research is very related to it's very consultable. You know, yeah. it's very consultable material. Um, what are you most proud of? Oh boy, there's a, there's been a few moments recently that I'm I'm very proud of. Um, 
and this is just a very personal story. My, my mom passed away in December and you mentioned the Stanford study. Um, when I found out that I made that list uh, on the Stanford's top scientists, um, my mom was, was there and I went, oh my God, mom, she goes, what's wrong? I said, well, oh my gosh, I made this list and she gave me a big hug and said, I'm so proud of you. And I think it was at that moment, you realize just when you don't think you're, you know, my mom was 91 when she passed and she, I thought she maybe didn't really know what I did. I realized she fully did. Um, she, I just had a book come out um, a few weeks ago, actually. And um, I was able to share with her that the book was dedicated to her. And, and it was a really special, it was a special moment. And it was one that made me proud. I'm sorry she never was able to see it in print. That's, that's beautiful. Um, okay, Paula, any regrets? Have you got any regrets? <laughs> you haven't lived if you don't have regrets. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I mean, let, let's go with something that's sort of fun. Um, I never, I was never athletic and I never learned sports, right? I never did anything that required eye-hand coordination. Now there's all this great research that's coming out in cognitive psych saying that, you know, the intellectual develops along with the physical. So I kind of regret not putting more energy into kind of my sort of physical conditioning, right? Just like eye-hand coordination or balance or agility. So it, it, it's a silly regret, and certainly I could give you a more serious one, but that one, that one I think is, is that, very That's interesting. Um, actually, not many people, now that I'm thinking about how many people say, no, I never had regrets, I will never have regrets, that number is higher than people saying, yes, I have regrets, and here are a list of them. Well, uh, if you don't have regrets, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, research. Uh, let, say, let's say you're stranded on a uh, on the side of on the side of the road in a small village. Locals don't know about you. So the idea is, how do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly, that who are not academics, and how do you explain why your research is important? So I I'd very simply say, um, I study. You don't know me. I don't know you. But we're from two different cultures. I study what makes people like us um, comfortable with each other, what makes people like us trust each other, what makes people like us want to spend time together, what makes people like us want to work together. So anything that that would, I would explain it in a way, depending on the context of, the, of where I stopped to meet these people, anything that would, would demonstrate how um, one, we're different and two, uh, we, could, we could trust each other and collaborate. Sure. So that's how I would explain it. That's very good. So, uh, in your opinion, what is the omitted variables? What, what are the understudied, underdeveloped areas in ID research? So, I, I'm very specific. So, as you mentioned, I, I, you know, I'm in HROB, but I, I'm even within OB, it's a little different. I'm industrial psychology. Mm -hmm. And even with industrial psychology, I'm considered micro. <laughs> so, I, I study. I study kind of what the phenomenon of, of individuals, you know, in, in the context. So IV kind of scales up. So what happens to people when they're in situations of novelty and what happens to people in situations of novelty that affect the um, ability to transact international business. 
so kind of rolling all that back, you know, because I study people in novelty cross-cultural differences, um, I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, we keep defining culture as the thing that happens within national borders. When I think there are far more interesting differences that happen from different socializing agents, such as um, generation, like generational differences nested within cultures or um, uh, urban, rural, cosmopolitan, local, you know, just very, very important socializing agents that, that differ from sort of the institutional effect that creates something we call culture. I think culture matters. I've built my career on that. Uh, but I think there's more. Well, generational differences are also in sociology, right? right. So, uh, uh, how does it? How does yours differ from uh, the so uh, sociology or the? I don't want to say macro perspective, but uh, societal level versus individual level. How, how does it? Uh... Oh no, it, it's actually it's the exact same, right? So it's just you know you, you as a person you're born into a, a generation. How does that generation? affect the value, your value structure, including the, you know, the situation in which you were born to, how do these different socializing agents layer on to create something you call your, your values mm -hmm. that we call, we, you know, we, we elevate that to cultural values, but, but how, how are your values created? So generation, your education, your, how you were raised, you know, religion, so, 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 you know, you keep layering on socializing agents and eventually we get something and our own dispositions, our own personality traits, they all roll together to create something called values. It'd be interesting to play with that a little bit more going forward. Sure. Uh, Paula, uh, going forward in the next five to 10 years, what are some lucrative areas for uh, junior faculty, for doctoral students to, to consider um, is the, the future uh, big questions in IB? Yeah. If I have the big questions as much as I do have um, encouragement toward multidisciplinary research. Um, as you named at the start of this, I'm a psychologist, my PhD in psychology. Um, joining kind of the theoretical foundations between sociology and psychology and economics and history and, you know, find I mean, all these different kind of um, fields that bring a really different piece to this puzzle. I think the more we're, we're talking to each other, the, the better our research will become, the more predictive it will be. And about interdisciplinary research, uh, what are your thoughts on it? And uh, what does mix well? What does not mix well, in your opinion? <laughs> I think it all mixes well, right? You just have to, it has to be the question for which the, the disciplines matter. Um, and as I just mentioned, I think I think that interdisciplinary research is is critical. Um, I can do a very different lens on interdisciplinary work. Uh, it's a little bit more dominant in organizational psychology and a little less so that I'm seeing in IB. Again, very different. This is an interdisciplinary in the academic sense. I, I've already talked about that. But interdisciplinary in our professional sense. So the scientist practitioner model. Spending time talking to, talking to practitioners who every day live and breathe the thing you're studying will shed such tremendous light 
on the phenomenon that you're studying. I understand it's a case study. I understand it's a one-off. It's one person's opinion. But the more time you do that, the more more time you spend with practitioners, they have such amazing insights about variables we don't consider. Um, and that's essentially the, the joy of interdisciplinary research. It's, it's, it gives you variables to think about, to add to your research, it gives it greater uh, explanatory power. So my recommendation, not only do we, do we sweep around our disciplines that are related, but also talk to people who are doing this. Uh, I mean, you talk to practitioners, what's the, what's an interesting question that you are surprised to hear from their mouth? Uh, what are they really working on in real life today? Uh, that is something that we don't really or regularly talk about. Yeah, I can give you a really, uh, this, this is a little different from the question they're asking, because um, I think you want me to talk a little more macro, but I had one fascinating one very recently. Um, so so with, we're in the middle, I, I realize this can be watched at any point in time, but as we're, as we're recording this, we're, the world is starting to get vaccinated from COVID. Um, and we've had almost a, a year plus of, of business travelers not traveling, expats not, not going to their host countries. And, and so I think there, there's sort of this dominant belief, and we see it in kind of these opinion pieces, that, um, oh, this is sort of the end of, of international business travel. It's the end of expat assignments. I've had amazing conversations with practitioners recently um, that have said it's, it's actually just the opposite. We really do want to get, not that not our, we're not expecting our business travel to go back to normal, but we're getting smarter about what business needs to transact face-to-face um, in order for trust to be built. So it's almost like a competitive advantage. If we can get the right people back in front of the right people while every other competitor is sort of keeping people in, in Zoom meetings, then we're gonna have a competitive advantage because we'll be able to build trust and credibility a little faster than others. And I thought that that was a, a really a fascinating lens. Um, you know, so I'm thinking, oh, how much of this is going to contract? And they're like, no, we're, we're, we're moving, we're, we're going. The budgeting Well, what you're saying is interesting. Uh... So they are saying to you that it is not possible to build trust over Zoom, right? In, in well, I, again, I don't know that it was a sweeping generalization. I think once a relationship is formed, that Zoom is fine to keep maintaining and fostering the relationship. I think what they were saying was they, they still believe that human interaction has a competitive advantage in certain jobs and roles and functions. So I think it's where, where is trust needed the most? Where can we actually gain competitive advantage by saying, nope, we're willing to put people, you know, if, of course, safety matters and all the other health and well-being matters, but there are certain circumstances under which we can, um, we believe it's competitive advantage to put people. It's, it's interesting. So uh, among the interviewed uh, scholars, there are some deans and uh, people who, um, uh, who, who say, you know what, it's very difficult to justify a $5,000 international tri trip in a conference uh, from now on because now Zoom is $50. 50 versus 5,000 isn't the same. And there are some people, they say, uh, you know, conferences have to be in person. We missed the touching part. 
uh, we need to be thanks to our colleagues. Um, this is interesting from the perspective of the, uh, the practitioners. Uh, they are identifying there's something missing in the, uh, in the equation that leads to building trust and relationship building. Uh, this is quite interesting. Um, about advice, about mentor, who was your uh, advisor? Who was your mentor uh, in the program? Right, so my, I was, uh, my PhD is in organizational psychology. I went to Penn State for my master's and PhD. My, advisor, my advisors were Rick Jacobs and Jim Farr. So they're both well-known organizational psychologists. Um, and, in, and my minor was actually in statistics and CRL was my uh, advisor. My first two publications were in statistics. Okay. Uh, what was the best advice you received from them? Wow. Oh God, they've given me so much advice over the years. Best advice. You know, you know it's funny, they, they always kind of across the board, even with my advisors from undergraduate, um, I have a certain style, I I'm kind of accessible. And it doesn't fly, my, my style doesn't fly everywhere equally around the world. I know I have to meter it and monitor it. And, and um, they basically said, be authentic, be, be yourself. You know, you can be as academic as the next person, but you have a style and a per, you're, as a person, stay true to you. And I, so I really appreciated that and enabled me to be, to not try to conform to everything about academia, but to really bring my own, my own self to the, to the, to the field. Uh, among the PhD students or junior faculty in these doctoral consortiums or uh, conferences that you meet or in, in your institution, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see they make? And what are the things that they should not do uh, well, what is your advice to them, to faculty, to junior faculty and PhD students? I always, I always recommend that the people, as I mentioned before, that they talk to practitioners. I think we train as we need to, right? We train our um, doctoral students and junior colleagues to, you know, kind of head down, fully immerse in the literature, hundred percent, embed yourself in theory and scholarship, and build off of the theory. And I think some of the, the, the biggest aha moments for me were, were, you know, in these kind of conversations with practitioners, but to get there, to be able to have those conversations, you need a skill that most academics um, at the junior level don't have. We gain it, we tend to gain it as we get a bit older. Mm. And that is being able to communicate what we do and how we do it in a way that they can hear it and, um, appreciate it. They can, of course, understand it. Practitioners in our fields are, are bright, but, but can they fully appreciate it? So we like to talk about our models and our theories and this, like, you know, okay, you don't need to talk. Just tell me what it is you're, you're really trying to better understand and, mm -hmm. and um, what have you found and being able to say that in a way that, that resonates. So any tools, any resources, capabilities that the patients should develop or junior faculty should develop to be able to make this translation between academia and uh, talking to practitioners to explain what they are doing, why is it important? Um, uh, what do they really need to develop? Um, 
Yeah, because it's a it's a good question. I, my sense is that what we what we need to be training, uh, especially doctoral students on, is okay. It's not just doing your research papers, research research papers. You know, we know we we know how to train students to do that. But I think there's a few other skills. One of them would be um, taking your great research study, your article that was just accepted, your article that was just published, and being able to convert that finding into a 500, 800-word LinkedIn post or 500, 800-word article that would go into a magazine or, or something, some publication, and trying to get it to, to be shared in a way that, that's accessible and usable. So if you can take your research, translate it into something written, and then go one step further and be interviewed about it or... Um, you know, being able to communicate it with practitioners, present to a practitioner network, being able to communicate it in another way. I think the more we teach that in an earlier stage, the, the better that rhythm, that scientist practitioner rhythm will, will happen and occur more naturally. Uh, thank you. That was very helpful. That's actually, that's a very actionable thing. It's a very actionable takeaway. Uh, last question for the sake of time. Uh, what is the, or what's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? <laughs> what should you have asked me but didn't ask me? How about, are, are you happy? Okay, here <laughs> you go. Are you happy? I am, thank you. I, I just feel so um, blessed, inspired, whatever phrase you want to use by the fact that I get to get up every day and and have this kind of a career. I really do. This has just been, been a great, it's been a great career. And it's not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Paula, thank you so much. I learned a lot. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Take care.